Welcome to another Climate Crash Course from GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. One of the most unfair things about climate change is that the people and countries that have contributed the least to it are the ones facing some of its worst impacts, culturally, financially, and environmentally. That's why at this month's COP27 Climate Summit, many countries in the Global South are hoping to claim compensation from richer countries for the damage they've caused to help them pay for the enormous costs of climate disasters. This type of compensation is known as loss and damage, and in this episode, we're taking a closer look at what it is and why it's such a hot topic right now. Joining us today is climate adaptation and finance expert Preeti Bandari. So last week we learned about greenhouse gases, what they are at the molecular level and how they work in our atmosphere. And here today, we are switching gears a bit, and we're going to look at one of the topics that's being talked about most ahead of this year's climate negotiations in Egypt, and that is loss and damage. In lines with the massive uptick in natural disasters in recent years, loss and damage is a term I've been seeing much more in the news, and probably you too. So today, we're going to hear about what it is and what it means from an absolute expert. So with that, I would like to welcome Preeti Bandari. Preeti is a senior advisor in the Global Climate Program and the Finance, Finance Center with the World Resources Institute, WRI. And in this capacity, loss and damage is one of the issues on which she focuses most. And prior to WRI, she's held senior roles at the Asian Development Bank, as well as the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, where she negotiated major climate climate finance agreements among numerous other successes there. And she is also a lead author for the IPCC's famous sixth assessment report. And I could go on and on about her accomplishments, but we're rather going to dive into the questions and pick her brain about this really important topic. So Preeti, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise with us here today. And I let's just start with the basics. Briefly, in your own words, what is loss and damage? Thank you, Gabriella, and thanks for the opportunity to talk to your audience. Uh, what is loss and damage? Uh, loss and damage is a general term used in the UN climate negotiations to refer to the impacts and consequences of climate change that go beyond our ability to adapt. So it could be, you know, loss and damage due to extreme events like cyclones, like floods and heat waves, uh, many of which we have been witnessing a lot uh, over the recent years. Uh, or it could be due to slow onset events like sea level rise, you know, which is a, a few millimeters per year or per decade or so, or events like glacial retreat, desertification. But in a nutshell, it is about loss of lives, loss of livelihoods, uh, loss of land and loss of infrastructure, but also, you know, um, loss of culture and identity in extreme cases. So, so that in nutshell is uh, is the expanse of of the issue that we are talking about. Thank you, and I think a key phrase in that was. Um the beyond our ability to adapt part. And we'll get back to that a little bit later in this conversation. Um, so you're talking about the losses incurred by climate change to 
not only people's environments and their homes, but also their lives and their cultures and their um, their uh, personhood. Mm-hmm. So how how is this compensated? How much compensation is needed to make up for this loss and damage? I would actually hesitate to use the word compensation in this context, and I'll I'll tell you why. Um, when the Paris Agreement was negotiated uh, and the article on loss and damage was included in the agreement, uh, uh, there was a general understanding in the so-called cover decision that uh, that inclusion of this is of this particular issue in the Paris Agreement is in no way an admission of liability or compensation at any given point in time. So, so, so that you know is is the broader construct within which the discussions and negotiations on loss and damage are uh, are expected to to be undertaken uh, at COP27 and beyond. Uh, But if your question is about, you know, uh, what is the tab, uh, there are various estimates available. In 2020 itself, uh, if we look at extreme events Uh, which were exacerbated by climate change, you know, the natural hazards which were exacerbated by climate change, uh, then the damages were estimated to be the tune of $210 billion. There are various studies, various modeling, uh, you know, estimates that are available for future losses and damages uh, due to climate change. There is one estimate that says in 2030, uh, it could be to uh, to the tune of 290 to 580 billion dollars. And 2050, it could rise to 1.1 to 1.7 trillion dollars in developing countries. So that is kind of, you know, setting setting the, the tune of the losses and damages that vulnerable developing countries are going to face if uh, if climate change is not checked, and if all the commitments that are being made uh, as a result of the Paris Agreement are not met. These are staggering sums of money that you're talking about. And that's just, I mean, these are figures that you're citing for single years, not even periods of time. And that goes to show just how extreme things are getting. You also talk about, um, you know, this is what it's going to cost um, for for developing countries, and you know, the the climate change breakdown is that developed countries are the ones who have caused this most, and so they're the ones who need to um, to pay to the developing countries and those who are affected most. Is there any legal or binding obligation for developed countries? to actually pay this loss and damage to those affected by climate change, climate change most, excuse me. Um, As I said earlier, you know, the issue of compensation, liability and legal obligation was parked at at Paris um, in terms of, you know, the legal nature of, of providing that kind of support. But it is in the context of what you rightly said, it is in the context of climate justice. Uh, those who are the least responsible for emissions and runaway climate change are bearing the brunt of it. Uh, So it is a question of climate justice. It is also a question of solidarity. We are working in a multilateral context. So to what extent 
you know, uh, these damages um, in vulnerable countries uh, uh, can 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 be supported by those who have the capacity and the ability to to support that from a solidarity perspective and uh, and while there are efforts you know to bring back this um, this idea of compensation and liability and reparations it is more in the context of uh, of uh, you know, taking a step together to address the most critical issues, the most critical demands, and uh, dealing with uh, with the vulnerability of of those uh, who are poor, who are least capable to deal with it. So, so it is stemming that discussion is you know stemming from from those principles rather than the legally binding or compensation uh, related uh, constructs. All right, so we're going to have to hang our coats on climate justice then. Uh, moving into some the difference between loss and damage and others, um, kind of similar terms. There are other types of climate finance out there. Uh, two of the main ones are for climate mitigation, which is money going toward efforts to keep climate change to a minimum, to curb emissions, to keep global warming in check. There's also climate finance for adaptation, so funding ways for us to cope with climate change and to adapt to its effects. How is funding for loss and damage different than adaptation or mitigation funding? Well, there are some overlaps, like you have said. Um, uh, it, you know, the language which was uh, discussed in Paris talks about averting, minimizing, and addressing loss and damage. So what you're talking about, you know, in terms of averting loss and damage, mitigation is the best way to do it. If you reduce emissions, uh, you know, you're contributing to reducing the impacts of climate change. So that is uh, the averting part of it. The minimizing part of it uh, is uh, uh, realizing that there are going to be runaway climate impacts, to what extent can we adapt to them? Of course, there are limits to adaptation also. You know, there could be limits uh, in the sense that climate impacts are so severe, for instance, that we we lose our coral reefs and associated livelihoods. So, so that is uh, a situation which is probably irreversible. But there are other situations where, you know, um, we could adapt, but but people, countries do not have the resources, the money, or the infrastructure to adapt. So that Ooh. is, uh, you know, the soft limit to adaptation. So, so, so averting definitely has a bit of an overlap with loss and damage financing, but the bulk of it is addressing. It is, you know, post facto. Once an event has occurred. How do you address the loss and damage? Of course, in the negotiations, the scoping out, you know, um, of of what will constitute uh, loss and damage that needs to be, uh, you know, supported or responded to is still under discussion. But there are these overlaps and there are these distinctions that need to be clarified in the negotiations. That the funding will be for what, where and how. Okay, so a bit of overlap, but also the bulk of it is in response to these events. Thank you. So getting back to why this term is 
so in the news and on the tips of our tongues now, uh, vulnerable nations have been pushing for loss and damage since the 1990s. This is actually nothing new. It's only just being addressed in more serious seriousness now. So why is that? Why is it being taken more seriously at this point in time? Well, I uh, the first thing I would like to recognize is the perseverance of um of certain countries, the small island developing states and also the least developed countries that have really kept the issue alive over the years. You said, yes, 1990 was the first time that Vanuatu brought, brought up this issue and actually wanted it to be part of the Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, but that was not to be. And at that point in time also, you know, there were all these concerns about compensation and liability and setting up precedents. So, so negotiations is, is, is a delicate art of give and take. Uh, yes. Uh, so, it, but but the issue has been kept alive uh, by these vulnerable group of countries, and in the climate negotiations, you know, it has evolved from from establishment of various mechanisms and various bodies to start talking about it, to build the evidence base. But I think what has really happened in the last few years is. Uh, is that science has really brought that evidence base uh, to the fore. Uh, and, you know, the recent IPCC assessment that you talked about, the sixth assessment report, has fairly put the loss and uh, fairly and squarely put the loss and damage issue on the table. In fact, uh, this is the sixth assessment report, which is talking about hard limits and soft limits to adaptation. And beyond that is the actual you know, loss and damage that we're talking about. So the science has caught up. Uh, the vulnerable countries have kept the voice up. And there are various stakeholders, I would say, including young people like you, who are really looking at it from a climate justice perspective. So all these have confluenced together to, to really bring it to center stage. Uh, and uh, you know, at COP twenty seven, uh, as you rightly said in the beginning, uh, this is going to be a preeminent issue on how the multilateral community really comes together uh, to to really uh, address it and uh, find pathways forward. And as I said earlier, in the context of solidarity, in the context of uh, climate justice. Uh, and uh, yeah, standing together with those, the poor and the vulnerable who are bearing the brunt of it already. It's nice to hear that different groups, be it activists or youth or the scientific community are picking up this term and um, putting it more into the fore. It's nice that it's being addressed through multiple avenues here rather than just those suffering the most. Uh, so uh, your last answer actually brings me to my last question, which is about the UNFCCC and with COP27 coming up in just a few weeks time, and UNFCCC actually has a new executive secretary, so its leader now comes from a small island developing state, one of these countries that's been pushing for loss and damage for a very long time. So under his leadership and with uh, the recent rise in news coverage around this term, and generally that this COP is based in Africa, one of the regions of the world that suffers most, what do you expect this year's COP to achieve for loss and damage? Do you have any hopes or any expectations for what's to come there? 
Well, I hope I had a crystal ball and there are just a few weeks left to COP27, but uh, you know, this, uh, this galvanizing of various forces and, um, and, and different moments that you're talking about or different events, uh, the new executive secretary, you know, coming from the Caribbean, and he has already uh, made that kind of a pronouncement or commitment that uh, this particular issue has to be addressed. It may be a difficult issue uh, to address at the COP, but you know such difficult conversations have to take place in right earnest and substantial meaningful discussions need to take place at, uh, at COP27 uh, to look at, you know, where is it that we can find solutions within the UNFCCC context or, you know, strengthening existing funds? So this is what the new executive secretary has said. But it is also an opportune moment, as you said, you know, the COP being held in Africa and the incoming presidency of Egypt also being, uh, you know, firmly behind finding solutions uh, to this uh, uh, issue. And of course, the first and foremost, uh, I think litmus test would be whether and how <clears throat> loss and damage, funding arrangements for loss and damage gets adopted in the agenda item for COP27, because at this point in time, there are various diplomatic efforts underway to find what would be palatable to all countries for the adoption of the agenda, including an item on loss and damage. And once that is inserted in the agenda, then it gives an entry point to, you know, bigger decisions that need to be taken uh, in terms of what would be funded, what funding arrangements would be there, uh, you know, whether uh, a facility which the G77 and China is asking for uh, will be established or, or not. So, so there are all efforts underway at this point in time and all strength uh, to those who are finding, uh, trying to find common grounds uh, to get this issue under discussion in all earnestness and seriousness, I think is, is, is the moot point. And it is our hope uh, that we will get well underway on uh, taking this forward in a meaningful manner as the executive secretary of the UNFCCC is hoping for. Thank you. It's nice to hear that there are um, there are some entry points that are being pushed for, and we just have to wish Godspeed to the negotiation negotiators that are pushing for this most, and keep our fingers crossed that it will it will get the attention it deserves in this year's negotiations. So Preeti, those were all of my questions. So we'll wrap up here. Thank you so much. It was really insightful to learn about this term from you and hear all of your expertise on what it means and what we can expect in the months to come. Coming up tomorrow is another Crash Course where we'll explore how bad climate change really is and what we can still do about it. If you don't want to miss it, subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll see you on the next one.